It's Thursday, May 9th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump's taxes released, sort of. The New York Times has obtained IRS tax transcripts for the president from 1985 to 1994, and what it shows is a lot of money lost. During that time, he lost money from his core businesses, casinos, and hotels, and totaled more than $1 billion. It also helped him avoid paying taxes eight of those 10 years. Toby Eckert, tax editor at Politico, joins us for what we know and what we don't know about Trump's taxes. Next, there are juveniles across the country that are getting trapped in the criminal justice system, all because of court fees. Most jurisdictions allow courts to charge youths with administrative fees, public defender fees, probation supervision fees, and many other charges. If a family can't afford these fees, the youth could end up in indefinite parole. Paul McLeod, BuzzFeed News reporter, joins us for a new bill in Congress that could end this. Finally, Kim Kardashian West has made criminal justice reform one of her top priorities, leading her to want to become a lawyer. In the meantime, she has been funding the 90 Days of Freedom campaign and has helped release some 17 inmates in the past three months. These are all people who are serving life sentences for low-level drug offenses and are benefiting from the recently passed First Step Act. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios, joins us for more on Kim's efforts. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The biggest mystery left is this huge interest income that you reported, I think, in 1989. It was $50 million. Um, there were auditors that were all over his books at the time. There were public reports that said he had between two and $100 million to invest. You can't get $50 million in interest from that. So that's the big mystery right now. Joining us now is Toby Eckert, tax editor at Politico. We're going to be talking about the president's tax returns. This has kind of been the ongoing fight. House Democrats are trying to get a copy of his latest tax returns. They have denied all requests for that. But the New York Times just did a story. They were able to get some tax transcripts from 1985 to 1994. And in there, they showed a loss of $1.17 billion. And it allowed him to avoid paying taxes for eight of those 10 years that were in those transcripts. Tell us what we do and what we don't know about the president's taxes. We don't know a lot because his full taxes from any year have never been released publicly. Things have come out in drips and drabs from leaks that are coming to news organizations like the Times, like Politico, the Washington Post. And it's fairly limited information sometimes. It's just sometimes the first couple of pages of a state return he filed or a few pages of federal return. It, it looks like the Times was able to get hold of more extensive information like that and kind of put together a narrative of his taxes and business dealings from those 10 years. These are being described as IRS tax transcripts. Is that different from the tax returns? Yeah, it is different from the returns, but some of the experts who the Times talked to said they are generally very accurate and reflect what is in someone's taxes and on their returns. Tell us a little bit about what the New York Times found out. They say that in 1985, the president reported losses of about $46 million from his core businesses, which were 
casinos, hotels, retail space, and apartment buildings. And then after that, he continued to lose money every year, as we said, totaling a little bit over $1 billion. He seems to have lost more money than almost any other individual American taxpayer in that time frame. There are all sorts of avenues available for people like Trump to ease their tax burdens when they're losing money. They can carry forward losses, which basically means if you lose money, in one year, you can carry that forward to your next year's taxes as a write-off. Also, since he was a real estate developer, he had a lot of opportunity to depreciate his properties to lessen their value, which also would create quite a tax savings. The president defended himself in some tweets. He said that you always wanted to show a loss for tax purposes. It was all sport. It was part of doing business back then. Is that true? Is that a, an accurate characterization of how a, you know a lot of business developers, a lot of business people would play the game, would play the tax code? We did talk to you know a couple of tax experts today who were involved in tax advising during that period. You know, it was kind of a go-go period of New York City and the U.S. economy, and they they've said, yeah, pretty much what Trump said reflects reality in terms of that atmosphere. Although some of was going on back then has since become become illegal. It was, you know, kind of a gray area back then. Trump has made no secret of the fact that he has strived to pay as low amount of taxes as possible. And it's something that he says makes him a smart businessman. The Democrats in the House right now are still trying to get the president's tax returns from 2013 to 2018. They want to look into some other stuff, how, you know, how low tax rate he paid. They also want to know if there's anything they can get out of there from possible conflicts of interests that the returns could show. So there's still an ongoing fight to get the latest tax returns from the president. There's a, a law that dates to 1924 that says the heads of the tax committees in Congress can request people's tax information from the IRS and that the Treasury Secretary, quote, shall, unquote, provide that information. But the Treasury Department on Monday rejected the request from the House Ways and Means Committee saying that the Democrats needed a legitimate legislative reason for obtaining those and that they hadn't established one. The next step appears to be that the Democrats are going to go to court and try to force these returns. Toby Eckert, tax editor at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Anytime. What happened was the court essentially didn't really follow up with her. And she didn't realize until four years later when she was 20 years old, when she went and checked her own record, that she was still on probation. Joining us now is Paul McLeod. BuzzFeed News reporter. We talk a lot about criminal justice reform, juvenile criminal justice reform. There was actually a bill passed unanimously last year in the Senate to handle some issues of juvenile criminal justice reform. But one of the aspects that hasn't been addressed yet is when children across the country rack up a bunch of fees, administrative fees for going to court and whatnot, and these fees pile up and then they can't pay them down and it leaves them in the system longer than they would normally be. There's a new bill proposed in Congress that would end this. 
Tell us a little bit about this, Paul. There were some things that just did not make it into the legislation passed last year, and this was one of these issues. So a lot of jurisdictions, actually the large majority of jurisdictions across the country, allow for different kind of fines and fees to be leveled against people who are in the youth criminal justice system. And what can happen is you will find yourself before the courts, potentially for something very minor, I mean, as little as uh, truancy violations, skipping school, things like that, you can find yourself in front of a court. And then what happens is you get hit with a court fee for every appearance, or if you end up on probation, you get these supervision fees for your probation officers coming to check up on you. And they can add up to hundreds of dollars, which for some families, they just don't have the resources to pay for these. And then what happens is people will find themselves trapped in the system, not because of recidivism or because they've breached the conditions of their probation. It's just that they aren't able to pay off the fees. Tell us a story about Shayara Hill. She had a five-year struggle with the criminal justice system for something very minor she started off with, but it escalated. She owed a lot of things. She remained on probation for many years. It started as a really sort of typical story. I mean, she's a woman who grew up in the Philadelphia area and went to a large high school, got into a fight in a school with someone who was picking on her little brother, and she got charged with assault as a 16-year-old. She found herself in front of court, the court. And she was told, look, just sign this. You're going to plead guilty. You're going to get a year of probation. Then it'll be over and done with. By the time you're an adult, you'll have no record, and this will not follow you around. So she signed. She thought everything was fine. And what happened was the court essentially didn't really follow up with her. And she didn't realize until four years later when she was 20 years old, when she went and checked her own record, that she was still on probation because she had not paid. She owed a few hundred dollars in fees for court fees. And she had not paid it. So she was still, as an adult, on probation. And so she made an attempt to try to clear this up. Uh, She got a court date to go, and in her mind, she thought it was just going to be an an issue of getting this cleared away. But then they said, look, you owe us a few hundred dollars. She didn't have the money right then on her because she didn't have a heads up so that she had a chance to save for it. And she ended up getting stuck on probation for another year. And then even though she paid off the fees within a couple of months, she was stuck on probation for the full duration of the year. And then she had another couple hundred dollars of fees that were accumulated through supervision fees and the probation fees. So it wasn't until she was 21 years old that she was actually cleared through the system for some minor incident when she was a 16-year-old. And now she's, as an adult, she's uh, out there trying to get her record expunged because it did not go at all the way that they had told her it would when she was a minor. Last year, California became the first state to ban all fees for incarceration, court appearances, probation, even drug testing. There was a county that was even reimbursing hundreds of people who had paid some of these fees. Washington State passed some of this legislation, and there's stuff that's been introduced in Nevada and Maryland. But there's also a California representative who introduced the End Debtors Prison for Kids Act to hopefully take care of this on a larger scale. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's a new bill from Tony Cardenas in the House. Uh, So this is something that people have just basically started waking up to only in the last few years. We still don't entirely know the scope of this issue, how many people are affected by it or trapped in the system just because of a 
essentially because of poverty. So there is now, for the first time, legislation before Congress that wouldn't actually ban this nationwide because that's not something you can do at the Washington level, but it would heavily incentivize states to take this on themselves. And the question right now is whether this has a chance at passing. Certainly, Democrats will happily pass this through the House if they think it has a shot. The question is whether it would get through the Republican-controlled Senate, where floor time is at a premium, and they've got no commitments right now that they would actually get a floor vote on this legislation. So right now, it's in limbo, and there's really no federal response to the issue yet. There's so many things going through your head, through your family's head, when something like that happens and get caught up for something minor. You're thinking, how is this going to affect me, affect, affect my time? If you're working or something, you know, maybe you can lose a job, the emotions that are going through it. And, you know, something like these small fees that rack up really can get the best of you. Like you said, especially in poor communities where, uh, you know, a lot of times they say these things really disproportionately affect black and Hispanic youth. Criminal justice reform is an ongoing conversation, but this is, should be something that should be folded into there. People can actually even find themselves detained because of this. There have been cases where people were not able to pay the fines and just ended up actually going to juvenile detention facilities, essentially saying, fine, I'll just go spend a couple months in juvie, because that's the only option available to them because they don't have the money to pay these fines and these fees. So certainly it's something that I think most people, when they see what's happening, they agree that this is not right, which is why we've started to see some states, some local jurisdictions change the rules around this. It's just a question of how quickly are we going to be able to respond? And is this something that's going to drag on for years? Paul McLeod, BuzzFeed News reporter. Thank you very much for joining us. Good talking with you. When Kim told me that I was being released, that I was going home, I started jumping up and screaming and crying and everyone else was crying. And it, it was it was wonderful. Joining us now is Steph Kite, reporter for Axios. We're hearing a lot about criminal justice reform lately. One of the big stories that happened just last year was the First Step Act that was worked on by Jared Kushner and that the president signed into law. It was going to help a lot of inmates possibly get out of jail. There's all sorts of things constantly being worked on. There was also this big intersection of criminal justice reform and celebrity when Kim Kardashian helped Alice Marie Johnson get granted clemency for some drug charges that she was in jail for. But it seems that Kim Kardashian is at it again. She's currently working with a new campaign called 90 Days of Freedom. Between her and the two lawyers that are working in this group, They've helped free 17 inmates in the past three months. Tell us a little bit more about this, Steph. It has been reported we're seeing that Kim Kardashian West has been funding these efforts to free many people who are in prison, especially those who are facing extremely long sentences for low-level drug crimes. And this is partially possible because of the First Step Act, which you mentioned, which allowed under certain changing of rules and the way that they count good time credits, which is time off of a sentence based on good behavior. All of these rules came together to allow more people to get off their sentences a little bit earlier. So they're working with different provisions that are in the First Step Act and helping to free people. And it is pretty remarkable that there would be 17 inmates freed in just three months. That's a significant number of people who are now able to go free despite being in the middle of serving life sentences. So they're identifying people that can benefit from the passage of the First Step Act. 
who's involved in this group that Kim Kardashian, from my understanding, she's helping bankroll the group and uh, helping with a lot of the funding. But who are the lawyers behind this? The 90 Days of Freedom campaign, it was launched by Kim Kardashian's lawyer, Brittany Barnett, as well with lawyer Neangel Cody of the Decarceration Collective. And so they're working together to go and find these people who would be impacted by the First Step Act and work toward getting them released from prison. And so they're the ones kind of behind this. And there have been obviously multiple cases of them successfully being able to free these people. Tell us about some of the other people that Kim Kardashian and her group have helped in this past few months. One of the people that TMZ has reported on is Jamel Carraway, who is back with his family, and he served 11 years of a life sentence, and that was due to cocaine possession. So, in simple possession, so it wasn't selling or anything else, it was just possessing cocaine, and probably the amount that he was found with was probably the reason why he received such a harsh sentence. And so now he is back with his family and transitioning back into society. Another story that was told was Eric Falcom. He is back in Florida, and he's seeing his mom for the first time in 16 years. And again, it was also a drug charge that he was originally arrested for and sentenced to life without parole from. And so we're seeing these stories of people who are really giving, giving these extreme sentences, and you can only imagine what it's like to have been facing the rest of your life behind bars and now being able to be reunited with your family. Why would these people get such harsh sentences? I mean, 11 years for cocaine possession. It depends a lot on where you are and how much of a substance you're caught with and the the kind of drug that you are caught with in the U.S. Harsher drugs like heroin and cocaine, when you're found in possession of some of those harder drugs, you're more likely to get a more harsh sentence. And of course, this always goes back to the war on drugs and these harsh sentences that began to roll out. There are also mechanisms where when there are multiple charges for certain kinds of crimes, the sentences can build upon each other. So you can add sentences for maybe being arrested for having cocaine and also happening to have a gun on you and they can stack those sentences. So there are many ways that these ultimate sentences end up getting so long just for drug possession. For all the criticism that Kim Kardashian gets, it is a very admirable cause to be dedicated to, to help Mm -hmm. people out in this way. I know she also got a lot of flack for saying that she is studying for the bar exam to become a lawyer. A lot of people say, well, you know, you're not going to law school. You're not going through the the proper ways. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're going to be hearing a lot more of this type of stuff. Oxygen Media had just greenlit a documentary that's going to be executive produced by Kim Kardashian. It's called The Kim Kardashian, The Justice Project. I think it's going to be a two-hour documentary that's going to chronicle her trying to secure freedom for Americans who she thinks have been wronged by the the justice system. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's going to touch on her trying to become a lawyer also, but if uh, right now she's working with this group, 90 Days of Freedom, I mean, she wants to get a little bit of that background on her so that she can help out with some of this stuff beyond just bankrolling mm-hmm. these things. You know, it's pretty admirable to be doing that stuff. But as I said, we'll be seeing a lot more of it on TV play out as well. And celebrities getting involved in this issue, for many advocates, they say that this is helpful, that one of the issues with the criminal justice system is that it is so complicated. And there are so many people who are behind bars with these very long sentences that don't really have anyone speaking on their behalf or who can't afford to keep a lawyer on their case. 
And so for many people, having high profile people like Kim Kardashian West or even Meek Mill, who has had his his own experiences in the criminal justice system and is now speaking out for probation and parole reform, it really does help amplify this issue that often gets a lot of support and a lot of energy behind it, but then disappears again once there aren't any pressing issues. And so the advocates that I've spoken to and people who worked with Kim Kardashian and the way that she advocated for the First Step Act would say that she did a really great job of just keeping this at the forefront of the news and having more people talking about it. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.